You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening and welcome to the Sunset Series. Tonight we're very excited because we are starting a new program called Sons of Abraham. And the idea behind this program is uh, to explore the many different communities in Israel that form this country. Uh, those communities are have the common point that they trace either their heritage or their spiritual heritage back to Abraham and share some common values because of that. Uh, the idea is also that many of our participants are Olim who have moved to Israel and who are new here, and they see a certain slice of the country. And there's a whole other dimension to Israel formed by these multicultural uh, minority communities, and they don't get to see that. So we are uh, very excited because we are going to be able to explore them from the inside uh, with people who are part of those communities. And we believe that also uh, because many of our com- in our community are from various uh, backgrounds, various countries all over the world, we can form a type of bridge between indigenous Israelis and these communities. And really to understand that this is part of the patchwork that forms what is Israel today. So we're uh, very pleased to invite Dr. Yasmin Abu Freha tonight, who's going to be speaking for us and giving us an insider's view of Israel's Bedouin community. Dr. Yasmin Abu Freha is a young doctor specializing in internal medicine. She serves on the board of directors of Project Wadi Atir, Yanabia, Tamar Center, and AJEEC NISPED. All are social projects and NGOs aimed to improve the Bedouin lives in Israel. She is currently acting as the executive director of Rodeina, an NGO she founded that aims to prevent genetic diseases in the Middle East, especially in the Bedouin community by spearheading premarital genetic testing and matching. She has won awards for her work in the field of health and was also chosen to be part of Forbes' 30 Under 30 list. Yasmin holds a BSc in Medical Science from Hebrew University of Jerusalem and an MD from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem as well. And uh, Dr. Yasmin, it's great to have you here tonight. And if you could please start off, we're going to be posing uh, a number of different questions, but if you could just start off telling us about your background, where you grew up, and uh, what community you're part of, and how Later you got to we where we will you talk are. about um, housing and, and Bedouin villages, but this was the first Bedouin town ever built in Israel. Uh, but I was actually raised in a, in a Jewish town called Omer, uh, which, which is... Uh, according to my father, is five minutes away driving distance, but about a hundred years apart when we talk about development and, and socioeconomic status. Um, and I, I now understand that it gave me the, the privilege that I have today and the ability to go and study med- medicine in the medical school of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. 
I also had, um, I had my national service year um, before I studied medicine. And after I graduated, because I had, uh, and I still have this very deep connection to my Bedouin origins in the Negev and the community in the Negev, I, I wanted to uh, go back and give back to my community. And I decided to do my medical internship and residency later on in Soroka Medical Center, which is basically the only hospital that we have in the Negev, um, located in Beersheba. Um, between my internship and my residency, I had uh, a gap of about a year. Um, and I, I went to Boston to study. Um, to, I, I participated in an entrepreneurship program together with uh, both Israelis and Palestinian entrepreneurs. And this is where I, I met my team, um, who is comprised of both Israeli and Palestinian uh, young entrepreneurs who helped me found Odena. Back then it was called Genesis. And it is an NGO that deals with, uh, like Rabbi Feldman said, um, preventing genetic diseases in the Bedouin community. Uh, and, and after that, I came back, I came back to Israel and, and, Today, I am lucky enough to, to be part of this initiative and also other initiatives in order to promote healthcare and accessibility to health in, in the Bedouin community. Maybe I think, um, could, could you, you want to uh, say something, Rabbi? Yeah, so could you give us now some, what's some of the background? What are the origins yeah. and the history of the Bedouin community in Israel? And maybe are they part of a larger community in the Middle East? and where they're located, and, uh, and then we'll move on to more details. About Wonderful. Um, yeah, great. This is exactly what I wanted to, to talk about. Um, because many people, to me, it was obvious, you know, um, this, is my, the, this is my origin, but to, apparently to many people, um, the Bedouin community is, is not very familiar. Um, so Bedouins are, they used to be nomads. In some places of, of, of the world, they, they still are, um, but in Israel, they're no, they're no, long, no longer uh, nomads. They started as a community, as a small community in the Arabian Peninsula, very, you know, hundreds of years ago, and they immigrated into um, Israel, the Middle East, and North Africa. The estimations today is that we have about 25 million Bedouins in in the Middle East and in North Africa. In Israel, the community of the Bedouin, um, the Bedouin community counts for about 340,000 people. 300,000 of them, between 270 to 300,000 of them live in the Negev, which is the southern part of Israel, the the desert triangle, what we call, and about 60,000 live in the north. Um, when you say these millions, is it one specific tribe? Is that how they define themselves? Or is it kind of tribes who are from this culture of were nomadic or semi-nomadic? How is it defined? Or is it an ethnic uh, group or a tribe? Or that's a, ve- that's a very good question. So the Bedouin community is, is going through this very fast transition Originally, this is a very tribal society. So um, they still, in a way, keep the tradition of, of what 
we know from very, you know, um, uh, past history of, of tribes moving around. Um, and, and in Israel, they still, they still live in tribes, but they don't, they, they no longer move around. Um, but they still keep some of the ancient traditions. Uh, for example, um, working in agriculture, a, a, being a very patriarchal society that uh, arranges marriages for, for the youngsters, sometimes even minors, um, and and it I, we we don't know if they all originated from one tribe or it just you know something that just kept on going with history because we know also the Jewish uh, community in history was tribal and we know other other communities in history used to be nomads and and uh, organized in tribes but eventually went through the process of sanitization and the Bedouins are somewhat the same, but in many countries, they still are uh, organized in tribes and still move from one place to another. And a good example, Saudi Arabia, Libya, Morocco. Uh, these are places where the Bedouin community kept their tradition of, of, of being nomadic and, and moving, in, moving in tribes. Um, so it means okay. that they move with, yes. So they see themselves as distinct from the kind of other population in Saudi Arabia or Libya. Their, the Bedouin community is a kind of self-defined community that transcends country lines. Can yes. you tell us? Can you tell us some of the? Are there any particular? Um, the the Bedouin are Muslim, correct? Ninety-nine percent are are Muslims. Yes. So are there any particular traditions? To the Bedouin community, either religious ones, social ones, how you do your weddings, uh, what would I mean? I've, many people have been to the Bedouin tent, you know, in the desert, and you know they talk about the tradition of hospitality, um, the tea, uh, the lafa. So, are there any other traditions that people might not know about? Well, I'm I'm very glad to know that you know the most famous tradition is is our very good hospitality. I think this is like the best uh, best thing that uh, the Bedouin community has, and this is wonderful. You'll never go back hungry, hungry or or uh, you know um, empty-handed when you go out of uh, a Bedouin house. But there are other traditions um, right. and this, other. This is where the Sons of Abraham theme comes in, or Children of Abraham that. You know, Muslims, Jews, trace ourselves back to Abraham. And Abraham's main characteristic was he was standing at the entrance of the tent looking for guests to invite in. Exactly. um, You know, in terms of shared culture and shared values, this is the starting point of it all, really. Right. uh, Exactly. And we share these values. And, and actually, it comes back what, to, to, you know, living, li- living in tents in the desert, because you know that the next family or the next tribe is miles away, or the next oasis uh, is miles away. And if someone comes and, and goes through your or next to your uh, tent, you don't want them to, to leave hungry, uh, because you don't know how much time it will take for him or her to get to the next to the next place, and this this is something that is still happening, uh, also in in our community in Israel. Even though you know the next house is literally 
few feet away. Um, but this is something that that stayed, and 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 we see in other other Eastern and again North African communities as well. Um, and this is, I, I think, this is a wonderful tradition, and like Rabbi Feldman, something that connects us and we share. There are other wonderful um, traditions, such as really, so the weddings are very, very uh, large celebrations. Today, in COVID times, it's something that we're, we're trying to discourage, but actually, this is wonderful. Like the um, um, a wedding in the Bedouin community, is something that takes at least one week, sometimes even two weeks. It's a huge celebration with thousands of people, usually. Um, most of most of the marriages, and this is something that I deal with a, a lot when I when I uh, work with uh, young couples, is most of the marriages are arranged usually between um, uh, family members, cousins, first cousin, second cousin, um, sometimes other combinations. Uh, but the people, sometimes they do know each other, sometimes they don't know each other. The arrangement is done by the parents, something that is negotiable. Really like when you think of ancient times, this is basically as it is today. Um, usually, and, and I love it, usually by the mothers, to begin with, and then and then the fathers give their consent, um, and again, and then we and then we set the the, the marriage up, and uh, and and the wedding happens. Today we go to to a more, um, to, you know, to to we get, um, let's say, more westernized in the values or ideas of a romance that we weren't such a uh, big part of marriage arrangements in his in, in you know in in previous history um but we see it more and more today more people are uh, getting married out of their families like my father for example um and it's it's beginning to happen uh, more and more we see a uh, be, because it's a very patriarchal society and this can be a a disadvantage, in my opinion, at least. Um, it used to be a very uneducated community, and and hundred um, percent of women were uneducated. Many of them had to had to drop out of school. Um, many of them didn't go even to school before that. I can say from my own experience. Actually, it's it's my parents experience but when they sent me to school I I am the eldest out of five siblings uh when they sent me to even to kindergarten my my grandfather my father's father asked him how much does he pay and he said I think a third of, of the price and and my grandfather was so angry saying you know you you're not going to see the fruits of your labor because she's going to marry the, some guy and and this is just it's it's um doesn't make any sense to send um daughters to school today we see this this notion um or this idea still happening in some tribes but we we see the transition of of giving more and more women the opportunity to study to graduate high school to study to get higher education and more and more um 
female examples or role models in academia, in, in medicine, in um, engineering. And, and I think this is, this is something that is, that is good. This is a good change that we're going through. Um, so here we get to the have, next question of what are the, some of the most pressing socioeconomic issues for the Bedouin community and how does that relate to its place in Israeli society? And so basically, how, and how is it handling all these changes? Wonderful. So, so I said so I think education is is one of the biggest um, one of the biggest challenges um, to continue uh, and actually answer your question. Um, I'll say first that uh, the Bedouin community at large is in the poorest and, and lowest socioeconomic status in Israel um, because of many factors, education being one of them, um, recognizing the housing settlements or the, uh, the way they live their life is part of it. So, I mean, the political issues are part of it. And some of it is... is as again the 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 need to keep the tradition and sometimes it contradicts with with development and modernization and uh, and of course well my uh, the thing that is that is close to heart is is um is healthcare so these are all challenges that we need to we need to go through and we need to to face uh, i think maybe um there's something that i i do need to to stress out because most people don't know this, but out of the 300,000 Bedouins that we do have in Israel, about 100,000 live in what we call unrecognized villages. And the unrecognized villages is a very, very deep and complex political issue that I'm not, I'm not sure I want to go in, go into right now, but, but just to give you some examples, it means that there is no, there is a, uh, a disagreement between the Bedouin community and the Israeli authorities about whether these settlements or, or uh, villages should exist in the, the place that they um, reside in today or not. And it means that they don't have access to healthcare, uh, electricity, um, uh, running water, sewage systems, and stuff like that. And was, so, did this grow out of the semi-nomadic lifestyle. I mean, if you drive in the, in the Negev, like from Beersheba to Arad, you see uh, all along the road, these, these settlements. Um, right. And so did this develop out of the semi-nomadic lifestyle? Is it a question of land ownership for indigenous populations? So, it's, this, is, so this is a good question because I think it's kind of a combination of a few factors. First, and I love to give my father as an example for this. Um, this is a community that went through a very fast, very, very fast transition from one lifestyle to another. And why I give my father as, as an example is because he was living in a tent as a nomad. Okay, He was living in the desert on a hill, basically in nowhere. And, and when and that was... Was that, was that in the Negev? Was, yes, it was in the Negev. Actually, a few miles from his house today. Um, and 
he grew up to, um, he didn't want to be a shepherd. That's what he told me. He, he, he didn't want to be, he was the youngest of all of his siblings. And he knew that if he's going to stay at, at home, he will be a shepherd and he didn't want to do that. So basically he went to school. And then uh, a few years later, he graduated the Technion, which is like the Israeli MIT. Um, and, uh, and he was the first Bedouin engineer. And today he has a very big house in, in Omer, uh, five very successful children all went to get, got higher education. And this is in, in matters of uh, 50 years. This is a transition that we, we don't necessarily see in, in many uh, communities. Other communities had to go through hundreds of years of changes in order to see this happen. I mean, when he, um, when he was 14 year, years old, he had to uh, rent an apartment. And this was the first time he, left in, he lived in, in a building. And he told me, you know, I touched, this, the, I, I touched the wall and suddenly there was light and I felt it was like ma- magic. So this is something that um, I, I think exemplifies, I guess, the, the, the transition that was going on very fast in, in the Bedouin community. And, this, and it causes some kind of conflicts uh, between people who do want to, you know, um, integrate and be part of the, of the more modern society. And some people don't. Some people feel like it's very, very different from their own lifestyle. Um, and together with this, there's also the, you know, the Israeli authorities' interest, uh, which is developing the country and building other uh, villages, and again going into more westernized, modernized uh, uh, lifestyle, I guess. And this creates conflicts. So I guess uh, it's kind of the combination of the two, um, and and. We see it also, for example, with the ultra-Orthodox community. Some people are willing to integrate um, to some extent. Some people are, you know, are very, very living in a closed society and want to live, want to keep their own traditions and values. And I think this is also something that we have to respect. Um, and then we see the differences. This is why we see some Bedouins live in Jewish towns and Jewish cities and get higher education and get better jobs and some people uh, decide to to stay and live in in you know in the tent in the unrecognized villages and also again we have the issue of people having ownership of the land and this is also being disputed um, so all of this creates this mess of of uh, people living in different um different ways of of lives and also uh, uh, with different I guess, a relationship with the authorities. And we can't really put all Israeli Bedouins and even all the Bedouins of the world in one basket. There is difference between um, even sub-communities inside the Bedouin community. Uh, Of course, depending on their socioeconomic status and and their way of life and their their values and, and their traditions. So within one family, will you have some branch? Do you have relatives who are living the more traditional lifestyle and your father chose to kind of uh, integrate more into modern society? We do see, we do see differences in, 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 in specific families. My family is a very good example because my father was the first one to do that. Um, and he was, um, 
he got a lot of criticism because of that. But eventually, in retrospect, when we look 30 years late, um, back, um, he was right. Now, now people are following his footsteps. Um, and we see more and more people from my society and my own family um, doing the same. We were the we were the second Bedouin family in Omer, which is a very high class Jewish town in in or Jewish suburb in the Negev. Um, today there are about twenty, and we see more other uh, Bedouin families moving to other uh, to other Jewish towns in the area in order to integrate and because they want to be less tribal, less, uh, um, they want to get better education for their kid, for their kids. And they want to get better lives. Eventually we all move together with, with time. And, and say, how, so then the, so then the challenge is how do Bedouin who have integrated more into the modern world, how do you keep your distinctive culture and your, family ties and your, right? That's always, you know, as Jews, we've had this outside of Israel as a minority, this challenge of assimilation, of losing right. in modernity. So right. Bedouin might be a minority amongst Muslims in Israel and a minority in Israel. And generally, how do you envision the future of how Bedouin will keep some of the culture and traditions and yet balance that with modernity? Um, to be honest, Bedouins suffer from racism, from inner racism, we call that, even from uh, other Muslims in Israel. Uh, they're being looked down at because of what people look at as, you know, primitive way of living. Um, and and this is, this is very sad to me, but I think what, um, what is beautiful about the beautiful about the Bedouin community is their ability to stay together. Um, I think there's a very very deep fear from from too much integration, okay, from from assimilation, and this is why, at least in the Negev, which is where this is where I live, so I know I know how to talk about this better. Um, we do have our own systems and our own um, social initiatives in order to promote and develop the community, but without losing our values and our um, sh our tradition. Uh, I I can tell I can say that most important thing is the language, and this is like this is also the the first thing that can that can uh, disappear when you when you assimilate and this is why it it can be i i can tell you that my hebrew is better than my arabic because i was raised in a in a, in a Jew, jewish and hebrew surroundings and this uh came out as very insulting to my family to my greater family because this is a very very important um part of our religion of of our tradition when I grew up, I felt how it is important for me. So I, I got back to my roots and, and I got back to my to my Arabic. But today in the Negev, maybe you, some of you know about it, we have bilingual uh, schools. 
mostly in Be'er Sheva, but in other places too, in order to give, to give place for both shared society between Jews and Arabs, and also, you know, give place to both languages and both traditions and, and say that this is not, we don't want to live just uh, next to each other. We really want to live together and keep each other's um, traditions. So the bilingual schools are, are one way to do that. Um, we have, so at Jignisped, yes. Is Bedouin Arabic, are there dimensions to it that are unique to Bedouin or is it the same as Arabic of, you know, most Palestinians? So there are, there are hundreds, hundreds dialects in Arabic. In Israel, I would say we have a few dozens. Um, the Bedouin dialect is unique to the Bedouin. Um, but still, they do understand all, you know, all kinds of Arabic and specifically what we call Fusha, which is like the, the written Arabic, the, the Arabic of the Quran, which, uh, which is uh, understood by any, by any Arab. Uh, but they do, have, they do have a specific dialect that is very, very hard to understand. I can say that uh, we, in, in my hospital, we have some, some doctors, some Arab doctors from the north coming to work. And sometimes it's very, very funny to see them talk in Arabic to, to the Bedouins because it's just, they need translation. They don't really understand what they say to each other. Um, and I, I, and also a funny, a funny anecdote is that some words in the Bedouin dialect actually originate in English because of the British mandate. And because they were part of the, you know, the military regime that was, that was here before, it's a fu- one of the, funny, the funniest words that I love the best is goter. Goter is, is, a, is an, a Bedouin word for going, for go there. This is actually originating from go there in English. This is something that we don't really say in, in, um, in known Arabic. So only Bedouins will know this, lang- with this word. Um, and I think, yes. I have another question. Um, mm-hmm. so one hears that the Bedouin serve in the IDF, particularly as trackers. Uh, that's what you hear. So right. I would assume that the Bedouin's outlook towards the state of Israel has been different than the Palestinian and general Israeli uh, Arab population. Uh, where is that at today? Has the tension over the land issues changed that at all? And um, maybe you could speak about that and why the the Bedouin community was more open to integrating into Israel, the state of Israel serving in the IDF. Um, well, this is a very good answer, a good question. Sorry, that, that I would that the answer is more complex. And I will say that, um, in my opinion, the the way the Israeli government treated Bedouins regarding to the mostly to the IDF um, to serving the IDF, but also for in other in other issues, are one of the biggest mistakes that Israel has done. And why I'm saying this this is because the Bedouins are ethnic minority. Because they were nomads, they did not feel any um, national connection to any place or land or anything. 
So once the, 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 um, the state of Israel was established, they actually wanted to serve in the military. There are, um, there are historic evidence to the fact that once the Israeli government banned Arabs and Muslims from serving the military, the Bedouin sheikhs actually um, demonstrated against it. And eventually it was, it was uh, decided that they are allowed to volunteer and to serve in the military, but they have to volunteer. They're, they're not called to serve. Um, and today, 72 years later, and because of the, I think, the, the decision to look at all Arabs together and put them all in the same basket, um, actually made, made most of the Bedouins feel more nationally um, identified as Palestinians. Um, and less and less as Israelis, and now we see less and less people volunteer to the army. We do see more and more people volunteer in national service, and and this is this is in my opinion a very good way to see to show that I am part of this community, I am part of this of this state, and I I'm a, I want to be a responsible uh, civilian, and and I want to contribute my time to my community. Um, but I, but this this is a conflict that is still not uh, uh, solved yet, and and I think I mean the damage is done. But now we're trying to we're trying to find some kind of a solution for this. So today, not many Bedouins serve in the military. Only only like two tribes that this is part of their uh, their tribal tradition. Uh, more Bedouins in the north serve in the military than the Bedouins in the in the south. You think uh, is there more of an awareness on the part of the government that they need to make efforts and to kind of not you know Israelis aren't always the most subtle so you know <laughs> today yes so we have very good today we have better cooperation with the government um, still of course we have our conflicts but but much better cooperation. We have better leaders, I must say, that understand the gaps and, and the way that they can serve as a connecting link. Uh, people like Dr. Muhammad al-Nabari and Khair al-Baz. Dr. Muhammad al-Nabari was the previous mayor of Khoura. Um, he has a PhD in chemical, uh, in organic chem- chemistry and chemical engineering. And he, he, was, he was a very educated man who did amazing projects in Khoura and created amazing connections with, with many authorities and the government. And today he has trust from both sides. And he's a very good example of, of, a, of a leader from inside that can help promote and develop the community together with building bridges with, with the government. Uh, and today we have more and more people like him. Okay, thank you. Uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground, and I know I feel like I have a better understanding uh, of the Bedouin community and the people. Uh, so we're going to open it up for questions. I'm going to hand it over to Shanna. And uh, if anyone has questions, please post them on the chat, and uh, Shanna will be uh, moderating. And uh, Excellent. Thank you, um, Dr. Freha. That was so insightful. 
not it's it's not every day that you get to ask all of the questions that you've had uh, in passing. And especially, I think it's important for Olim to know about the communities in Israel because we are representatives throughout the entire world. If you're from France, if you're from New Zealand, you go home and your non-Jewish friends or your friends who have never visited the Middle East have questions you should. You certainly need to provide those answers because you might be the only one that um, is in your unique position to be an ambassador of of where you come from. So thank you for sharing with us. Thank you. Um, yeah. So we have one question already in the chat, but I want to encourage everyone who has a question to write their question in the in the chat. Um, I'm sure that many of you have had questions in the past about the Bedouin community. It could be religious. It could be about the doctor herself and her experience. It could be about anything. Um, and she has so, so much that she covers. So first question that I will ask is from Shirley. She wants to know, would you say that the modernization led to more urbanization of the Bedouin communities? For example, Rahat. Yes, absolutely. We see more and more um, people looking for an urban way of life. Um, Rahat is like the, the only uh, Bedouin city in Israel. Um, I really can't compare it to Beersheba or Tel Aviv. It's, it's not the same. Again, it's, it's in the lowest socioeconomic status in, in, in Israel. Um, but still we see the the you know, we see the thrive and, and how people want to live in cities and have better lives and better urban lives. And and um, even, you know, they build their own houses in the suburbs and they are huge and, and you know, still keeping the idea of living with, with the family, but no more tents, no more camels in, in the yard. It's different. It looks exactly like suburban American houses now. Thank you. Now, moving on, we, we covered this a little bit before, but I think people are really curious. Barbara wants to know, what are the other main treats and qualities that the Bedouin community is known for outside of hospitality? Um. That's that's uh, that's a good question. So um, so basically, what I what I love about the Bedouin community is uh, how important family is, and I I knew it, I guess, before, but I actually saw it and understood it better when I started working as a doctor. And you know, I uh, and I work in in internal medicine department, which is where we have the elderly patient and many of them are very sick and very lonely. And it was amazing for me to see how, um, how with the Bedouin families, they never left their elderly alone. We, sometimes we have 50 people coming to visit at the same time their family member which can be very annoying to, to the medical staff. But when you think about this, it is, it's amazing. It's really beautiful. And, and in the Bedouin community, family, like the, we say that blood is thicker than water. Um, 
we really fe- we really see it. Uh, if someone is related to you, you owe them everything you have, basically. And it's a, a wonderful, um, wonderful trait in the veteran community. Uh, we also see this, the, the way they treat the elderly. So um, most most people in the veteran community uh, won't be sent to, to a nursing home. They'll be treated at home. Uh, they always have, because the families live together and because uh, uh, the tribal way of living and the fact that even, even with urbanization, the families live in the same neighborhood and, and they're all neighbors, um, they, they take care of each other all the time. Uh, so this is, this is one of my, uh, my favorite things, I guess. That's beautiful. Um, that's really beautiful. Now that the Bedouin are the Bedouin community is more educated, this is this question is coming from Miri Mitchell. I presume they are choosing their own marital partners. Are their choices folded into the system of parental negotiation and approval, or are there just family fights about about marriage? So it depends. Uh, you know the the issue of of conflicts between generations I guess is universal and I guess it's in in every community and society so this obviously depends on the family some families let their kids choose um, and this goes without a fight some families won't Um, in my in my organization we have a few you know sometimes teenagers or Young couples come to me and say, you know, my parents want me to marry my cousin. I'm not really into it. Do you mind doing the, you know, doing the tests and we'll tell them that we're not matching or something because they don't want to do it. Um, and they want to and they want to overcome the conflict between the generations because, you know, people people know what they know and they and they're very used to um, a specific way of life. And and there, there there always will be difference between what our parents think and what we think and what our children will think. Um, and and I guess I guess it will it's it's uh, stronger than than time. Wow, I think that this is certainly an issue that exists in every community in which the children are trying to get out of the old ways of the parents. But that's very so. Ha- so, how much money did they have to pay you to fake the uh, genetic results? <laughs> I do it for free. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. Don't, don't tell. Um, I won't sell. So, here's our next question from Jeff. Jeff says, "My son, who spoke Arabic, was a medical student at BGU Saroka. He worked in a clinic in a Bedouin village called Atras. What steps would you suggest?" to take to encourage more Jewish professionals to work in the Bedouin community? Um, actually, actually, we have a lot. We have a lot of Jewish professionals working in the Bedouin community, maybe not necessarily in the field. Um, uh, many of the academic work in Ben Gurion University in Be'er Sheva is done on the Bedouin community. Um, and I think, I think we... we we should, I guess, talk about it more, not necessarily as, you know, as a research subject, but some part of, you know, as part of, of the society and the place that we live in. Um, 
and once we see it as you know as as a, as a sh- maybe maybe the question should be in my opinion how do we encourage a cooperation of Jewish and Bedouin professionals to work together on these research issues or other things um, because we we happily have more and more Bedouin professionals working together with with Jewish professionals and and this can also encourage other Jewish professionals work in the Bedouin community um, now with that with that we have another related question good. from <laughs> from someone who is working as an English teacher in Rahat, and she wants to know what are some things she should be mindful of, perhaps culturally, um, that she should have in mind when she's working with the students. Oh, wow. That, that's, uh, I, I need another hour for this. Um, but uh, I guess, I, I want to say that, to me, it took time because I, I grew up, you know, I grew up in Omer. I, 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 I knew my Bedouin family and I met them in, in you know, um, family events. But I grew up very judgmental. It took me away. It, it took me, you know, a good amount of time to get rid of my um, judgmental point of view. And and today I feel really much integrated and in, in part of the Bedouin community. And it took me time to talk about things that are against my personal values, like for for example, polygamy, uh, um, marriage inside the family, as things that are. Um, I still think that they are bad, okay? I don't, I, I, I try to encourage people not to do that. But when I talk about this, I talk in a more respectful way because I understand the social benefits that the entire society gets from it. And so, so I think it's not, you don't need to get rid, you know, you give up your values, but just be more sensitive on the way kids and specifically teenagers um, hear what you say. And, and it's also, I'll say this, and I feel confident enough to say it in, to this crowd, and I believe you, you'll understand me, as Rabbi Feldman said, you know, the, the Jewish people were also a minority uh, and still are in many places. Being a minority is um, feeling deprived and underprivileged all the time and fe- feeling, you know, looked down at. And sometimes the tiniest sentence can, can make you feel like that again. And this is something that you should be very, very sensitive about. Uh, even to me as a doctor, uh, so I speak Hebrew without an accent. And people think if people don't know me, like, for example, a patient, they don't know me, they wouldn't know that I'm Arab or Bedouin and they can easily say something like, you know, these, these Arab people, I I don't want to be treated by whatever. And sometimes they don't really, they don't want to hurt, but it just, it comes out very bad. So I think these are the things that you should be sensitive about. By the way, I wanted to point out the marrying within the family. If you look at the, family of Abraham and Sarah, and the three generations after, uh, that Rachel was uh, Jacob's niece, 
and Isaac and Rebecca were cousins, and Sarah was Abraham's niece, and right. and uh, so uh, we have origin. I agree. It also comes, you know, royal families in Europe did that for for centuries, um, but but today is very it's very unacceptable in many communities, and 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 this is why. Sometimes it can be it can be felt as a judgment against the Bedouin community, and and we should be more respectful for this. What's so interesting, we know as in, in America right now, there's a lot of discussion about prejudice and about minority rights and uh, rectifying injustices. And I think many of the people here who uh, have roots in uh, you know outside of Israel are more sensitized to these issues than Israel. And I think uh, we can play a role in terms of improving these these issues here in Israel as well. I know there's been improvement, but certainly a long way to go. Absolutely. This is actually something, I'm from Queens, New York, which is uh, the most diverse place in the world. And a lot of the times I say, I wish that all Israelis and everyone that lived in Israel could just for a time have gone to public school and lived with other communities and then come back because I think that every single person that has that experience will really interact with the world differently. I want to ask, um, I want to ask another question from Leah. She says, thank you, Dr. Yasmin, for an incredibly and eloquently explained insightful lecture. How has the Bedouin community dealt with their differences from the Palestinian or Arab Israelis? And I know you did touch on this, but I think she's looking to see if you have any examples or any, um, any, moments that come up for you where the community has faced violence, threats um, due to serving in the military? And how has the Bedouin community reacted to this? And do you think that the Israeli government should be intervening to support the Bedouin community more against the against this discrimination? Um, this is a tough question, I must say, because we also have conflicts within the Bedouin community about military service, I would say I would vote against the government involvement in this issue because it will only cause more damage um, uh, than than help. But um, the good thing about the about the Bedouin community again is the, is the their ability to work together, and the fact that they are somewhat a closed community, but also so they can they can protect each other so in tribes that go to the military they know how to they know how to protect their family members um i think i think that formal authorities should should do what they can against obvious discrimination and against obvious violence as you know as they should with any with any citizen um, our biggest problem is actually not from the outside, but actually from the inside. And I'll give you a story to, as an example. I had a I had a patient who I, I I loved very much, and and we got to know each other because he he was admitted to my department because he had a very severe cirrhosis, and he got this liver disease because he was um, addicted to, to alcohol. And when I asked him what happened, why are you, you know, what caused you to drink this much? 
And he said that he served in the, he was Bedouin, of course, and he served in the army. And after that, he was, um, um, his family. Ostracized. I'm sorry. Ostracized. Yes. From his, from his, uh, from his tribe and from his family. And he, he was basically left alone. And, um, he also had to divorce and he became, he became very lonely and very depressed and he found his medicine in, in, you know, in alcohol. Um, and this, you know, this made me very sad because, because this was the opposite of what I knew as a Bedouin value. It's what I told you of how the family protects their, their own family members. And, but this is something that happens. And, and I think that, this is something that we should work on and you know what we have i believe in i believe generally that if a person or a society has a problem we need to look inside to see how we can solve it solve what we are doing wrong than than blaming the outside um and this is this is something that we really should work on thank you now i just have two quick final questions if you if you can Mm-hmm. We have one question. In your work in the health field, are you discouraging family members from marrying one another outright? Or do you do prevention through the genetic testing? Do you rely on the genetic testing? And then after you answer that, we have one more. Okay. Uh, so we so we do both. We do both. But I don't tell people who to marry. This is a red line in my organization. Um, I do educate them that it has a higher they they have higher chance of having you know uh, sick children and I explain it in a very you know scientific way of we we do we do we we do educational sessions we teach genetics we make them understand it's I think it's better than saying so for decades the Israeli Minister of Health used to say, you know, it's your problem. You 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 marry your cousins, so of course you'll have sick children. But but to be honest, it's um it's true. They do have a higher chance of having sick children, but but it's not necessarily with any with any couple. So this creates it breaks the trust because if a, if you know if cousins marry and they don't have sick children, then they say, you know, We've been lied to. And if people who are not cousins get married and have a sick child, then they'll say, we've been lied to. So we're trying to do it in a more, you know, teach genetics, make people understand the statistics behind it and say, just do the test. We will help you do whatever you need. We will make you overcome the challenge. It's free. It's accessible. Just we give you the information. Now you decide who you want to marry. You want to marry your cousin? Perfect. Wonderful. We we won't judge you for it. Do whatever you want. Um, just do the test before you get married, before you have your first baby. Uh, and then we can help you from that to better better plan your family. And this is being more accepted than the, the alternative way of saying it. Excellent. And thank you so much. And final question. Um, what what was your experience? First of all, I wanted to comment on um, you noting that your grandfather said that it was a waste in the investment that your father made on your education. 
which is just, you know, if you're a person, if no matter who you are, the numbers don't lie. You, that investment certainly went a long way being that you are supporting yourself and your family with the money that you earn as a doctor. So we all know that that just wasn't true at all. But um, what were some things that were said to you while you were going through medical school? What were some things that you experienced when you returned to your community? And how were you able to block that out and, and keep moving forward? Um, so I had, I, I had a very good experience in medical school. I didn't, I didn't have a lot of, um, uh, you know, backlash from my community. Some people still find it very weird that, uh, I'm not married yet. Um, and, and I, I guess it bothers some of my, you know, some of my aunts and uncles, um, but they are, I think they gave up in a way. They said, okay, they, she, she's doing whatever. I mean, we're, we're, not, um, we're not in control anymore. And I think what, what made me um, and still helps me go through, through this and you know, make the criticism go over my head is uh, something that I think I also said in, in, in my talk at APAC. This is a, a Nigerian pro, proverb that I really love that says that if you educate a man, you educate an individual. If you educate a woman, you educate a nation. And I, I really agree with this, not because I think men shouldn't be educated, absolutely not, but because I think that um, spe- specifically, you know, in our Bedouin community, women raise the children. And if, and, and, if a woman is educated, then it is guaranteed that her children will be educated. And you see the difference in the way the family behaves and, and the way they, um, they calculate traditional values together with other values that come from the outside. And I remember my mother always telling me that, you know, I shouldn't be judgmental and, and I shouldn't and I should always look to help other people and develop myself. And when I develop myself, I have to give back to my own community. And I think I can do that today because I, I was educated. And, and, and this is a privilege to me and to go back to my own community and help them and help other women who want to get education. That is beautiful. And I love that proverb and I will be using it. Wonderful. <laughs> so thank you for sharing it. Thank you, doctor, for being with us. Uh, I have one comment, which was from one of our loyal Sunset Series followers that you have been his favorite so far. I already Yay. received that as a private message. So I hope that makes you feel good. Very. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for coming. Next week, we are continuing the Sons of Abraham Sunset Series talk. I am so excited that we're finally doing this. Rabbi Feldman and I have been thinking about this and working on this for a long time. And we are bringing an insider. Next week's topic is an insider's view of Israel's Druze community. We're going to hear from Mendy Safadi a specialist in the Islamic world and politics who is a member of Israel's Druze community. The Druze community is a minority with a secretive sort of religion. They live mostly in the Golan Heights, and they also have 
of members in Syria and Lebanon. And actually, I stayed at a um, Druze campsite over the summer, which was really awesome and got to be with the Druze people as well. So I'm really excited to hear and learn even more. And I hope that everyone who's with us will come back. I put all of our information in the chat, including our Gmail, where you can send us an email if you want to get on our mailing. You can follow me, which I'm always posting about the Sunset Series on Facebook and on Instagram at Shanna Fold, S-H-A-N-N-A-F-U-L-D. And you can follow the Tribe Tel Aviv Facebook page as well. And if you want to hear the recording from today, you can get the audio from Rabbi Feldman's podcast, which he updates, and it is called Jewish Matters. And I put that link in the chat. So if you want it, don't log out yet. You can find it there. Thank you, Dr. Yasmin. We really appreciate you coming and speaking for us. And if there are any ways people can get involved in terms of visiting the Bedouin community or any organizations that do cooperation, um, maybe you'll let me know. And if anyone would like that information, they can reach out to me. Wonderful. Really very, very much appreciate your coming on speaking. And I think people have learned a lot. And, uh, Thank you. Thank you all. It was wonderful. Much uh, blessings and good things for you in your life and your work. Thank you. Thank you, Shanna. And uh, good night, everyone. And we hope to see you all next week. Great job, Rabbi Feldman.